Welcome to the Directions Mag Geo Inspirations podcast series with Joseph Kursky. Well, greetings, folks. Welcome to another installment of the Geo Inspirations column in Directions Magazine. Joseph Kursky here from ESRI and also from the University of Denver. And I'm very pleased to report here that uh, I am joined by one of my longtime friends and colleagues in the geospatial field, Dr. John Wilson of the University of Southern California. Sir, welcome. Thank you. Uh, much appreciated. I know how busy you are and really appreciate the time and so will the listeners. Now, John, I know that a lot of people in the geospatial field, academia and, and beyond, know who you are, but just, just to kind of set the stage, could you, could you tell the, the listener uh, who you are, maybe a little bit about your pathway and how you got to your current position and then what is your current position? Okay. Uh, so uh, I was uh, born in New Zealand. Uh, I, got a, I went to college, got a law degree. Uh, then in the middle of that, decided to enroll in a Bachelor's of Science Honours degree. And then uh, I wanted to do a PhD, so then I did a master's degree, and then I traveled halfway around the world to the University of Toronto, where I did a, a PhD in, you know, I think it was called, Envi the group I was with was environmental geography, but you could think of it as geomorphology in most respects. Uh, then I uh, finished the PhD, more or less on time, and then I got a tenure-track uh, position in the Department of Earth Sciences at Montana State University. Uh, while there, I uh, established the Geographic Information Analysis Center. Uh, and then after about 14 years there, I was offered a job at the University of Southern California. So I came here as a tenured full professor. Uh, initially, was to the, the Department of Geography, which I chaired twice. I was also chair when uh, uh, Dean decided to close it. Uh, I was then offered the opportunity to imagine uh, spatial in a modern research university. And so for the last 10, almost 10 years now, I'm uh, a professor uh, with appointments in sociology, uh, preventive medicine, architecture, civil environmental engineering and computer science. Uh, but my day job is the founding director of something called the Spatial Sciences Institute. And it's very unique because uh, notwithstanding it's an institute, it, uh, it owns, it has launched and owns and operates its own academic programs, just like a regular department would. And I think at last count, we have 18 different academic programs spread across uh, the undergraduate, masters and the PhD spaces. And uh, I, I write books, I do research, I teach a fair bit, uh, and I do a lot of administration. Well, that is amazing, sir. I, I want to pick out a couple of things in there. First of all, uh, as you know, I am in Colorado. A lot of students in Colorado actually end up going to Montana State for, for various reasons. Yep. And I'm wondering, having been to that campus over there in Bozeman, what was it like for you uh, to move from, you know, the big sky country, wide open spaces to <laughs> the center of one of the biggest urban areas on the continent? What was that like? Well, I think we should preface that with the fact in my life, I've really only made four moves from little New the South Island of New Zealand, which is a 
relatively big space with very few people in the middle of nowhere, meaning the Pacific Ocean. They went to Toronto, which is, you know, one mm -hmm. of North America's big and great cities. They then left there to go to Montana, which was even less populated than the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, and then I came to, you know, the University of Southern California is just two miles south of downtown Los Angeles. So <clears throat> each of those in its own way is a big move. Uh, you know, Mon <clears throat> Montana was, was spectacular for me. I had a lot of uh, academic freedom. I had a lot of encouragement. Uh, I, I built the first GIS courses in the Earth Science Department there. They were instantly popular. A lot of interest in land resources. There's a lot of involvement with state and federal government, and so I had a, a super good program up and running. Uh, and and but they were I only had either undergraduates or master's students, and mm -hmm. I was a bit more ambitious than that. And so I initially came to USC just just as a visitor on a short term gig, uh, and even that got complicated because the two schools negotiated that I'd. I could be a visitor here part-time and I'd go back to Montana part-time because they wanted me to run the center I created there. So it's so I sort of had a, a bit of an entry, uh, so I didn't sort of do it cold turkey. Uh, mm -hmm. But what you lose coming to a, a big and a great city like Los Angeles is spontaneity. You know, in Montana State, I got sick of my work. Uh, I could I could get on my bike and 10 minutes later, I could be walking on a forest trail all by myself. In Los mm -hmm. Angeles, there are plenty of trails nearby, but organizing when you go and how you get there is like a sort of a, a military operation because if you pick the wrong time, you're <laughs> uh, stuck in traffic. Uh, indeed. Well, having been to your campus as well, I, it's, a, it's a beautiful sort of oasis of, of tranquility um, in, in the midst of a, a very busy place uh, with the fountains and the, and the vegetation that you've got yep. there, really a spectacular environment. And another thing that I wanted to pick out there is, yeah, you and I have similar loves of different, uh, all kinds of different ecoregions and, and physical geography. One of the things that's always fascinated me about you is that story that you just lightly touched on. And that is, and I'd love the, the, the listener to, to hear this a little bit more detail, how you basically had to reinvent yourself and your department when you, you're faced with, okay, Dr. Wilson, your, your department's going to close, but the next day, wasn't it something like the next day you were hired to, to start the Spatial Sciences Institute? Yep, yep. So I had a little forewarning, but basically on the last day of June in 2010, the Department of Geography no longer existed. And then the following Monday, the, whatever was the first day in July, uh, the Spatial Sciences Institute was created. And, uh, <laughs> and the deal that the dean made uh, was that nothing about geography could be carried over to my new idea. And so that included things like the furniture or the coffee, coffee machine. Or like that. So my, my first task as spatial sciences director, the Dean's office asked me to copy some documents and bring, sign them and bring them to them. And after thinking about it for a minute, I realized, well, damn it, I don't have a copier. So I'll take the originals, I'll sign them and then they can make me copies. So I have them. <laughs> the spatial uh, thinking extended right down to the furniture. Yes, yes. So, you know, on the, on the upside, I think, you know, for better or worse, the way the geography department at USC was constituted and the way it chose to operate 
it never attracted a very large student body. And so in the end, that was sort of the death knell. Uh, and so the challenge in imagining uh, a spatial enterprise that wasn't cast within a geography department was to, to be confident that you could create it in a way that students would be interested. And so, you know, a, a later question has to do with what I might think is my biggest accomplishment. Uh, one of them certainly is the, the forethought and the results that my colleagues, faculty and staff and I have achieved in building uh, the Spatial Sciences Institute at USC. Uh, you know, we, we mm -hmm. have students. Uh, it's a very competitive, aspirational place. It's a, it's a r rapidly rising university. And, uh, and, you know, you win hearts and minds with ideas. And, and, with, uh, and with pathways to practice and technology and things like this. And, uh, you know, I'm most proud of the fact probably that we've done a, a good job in all of our different academic programs sort of mixing theory, practice and technology uh, and producing students that, that find valuable careers thereafter. Indeed. Well, you're a lifelong learner, and that's one thing that comes out of that story. Uh, you know, for students and others listening to this, it's, you know, sometimes you have to reinvent uh, things. Sometimes you have to uh, be innovative uh, with very short notice. Yep. And, but out of those changes, oftentimes uh, you've got inc incredibly new innovative programs and ideas that never m might not have happened in the same way. And certainly, you know, in the entire geography, geospatial community, uh, the graduates that have come out of your program, I know we've got many of them here at ESRI and just in, in other travels to other campuses that I've done over the years. You're planting many good seeds there, sir, uh, far and wide. So, so kudos to you and Dr. Swift and others that are, that are there um, doing the good things that you're doing. Uh, yeah, you did touch on a couple other things that I was going to ask you, but um, what about this? Um, is there a particular person, class, or topic that was most inspirational to you in this journey of yours? Uh, well, I think it's, uh, I mean, in my whole extended family, I was the first person to go to college. So that, that right there made me the outlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that it was barely tolerated because uh, I announced my aspiration was to go to law school. And in New Zealand, at least in those days, you could after you could take a, a, a particular set of classes your first year in college, and that would determine whether you got to go to law school or not. And so I was lucky enough to pass the required classes, so I'm, I was actually in the law honours program. And then I think in either the end of the second year or the beginning of the third year, there was a class about land administration. So everybody else, all the other people in the law program thought this was the worst, most boring class ever. But of course, it was all about the environment and how mm -hmm. we regulate it and everything like that. And I just remember there was this one, uh, one week where the professor described uh, a case that was really about, you know, liability and responsibility, but it, it had, it had a, a real estate developer who had bought a plot of land in an embayment in, in the far north of the North Island of New Zealand. So it's almost semi-tropical. And he'd worked out a way that if he took away the sand dunes uh, and he graded the hillside appropriately, you could build sort of four or five or six rows of houses back up the hill and all of them would have an unobstructed view of the, 
the local bay and the ocean uh, in the distance. And, you know, for real estate, if you had that view, that was worth money. And so we went to the, it was a, a little rural county and it had a part-time planner. And so he mm -hmm. applied for planning permission. He got planning permission from the part-time planner. And then they built the subdivision. Uh, all the houses sold like hotcakes. The people moved in. And a few months later, they had what, what was cast as a one in 500 year storm. I'm thinking about, yeah, the sand dune removal. I knew we were coming to this, John. <laughs> so, you know, the wave swept into the bay, took away. They would have normally taken away the sand dunes that the wind had built up from uh -huh. 500,000 years, but they didn't stop because there was no dune there anymore. And so they kept on up the hillside. And so the first three or four rows of houses were basically trashed, uh, unlivable. And so, you know, the, the, the people who had bought houses sued the developer, but the, the thing that was, that was about the law class was the developer's defense was that it's not his responsibility to know whether the, his proposal was good or not, or whether it was safe or not. That's why, you, that's why you go to the county for planning permission. It's their responsibility to tell you whether that's a good idea and whether they'll approve it or not. And you know, here we have a, a young man, I think it was, a uh, couple of years out of school, planning degree, no training whatsoever in the earth sciences, no knowledge of what a sand dune was or what probability means in terms of recurrence interval of storms and so forth. And I don't even remember now how the case ended up. But for me, that was like a light bulb. Wow. Mm -hmm. Understanding earth processes and their, their recurrence and space and time really matters. That's really what I want to be doing. I, I, and so I then finished my law degree and then I simultaneously enrolled in a science degree in geography uh, so that I could do the stuff that was more exciting, more interesting to me. And I've been super fortunate because I've had the opportunity to do that my whole life now. Indeed. I love those stories. And it reminds me of uh, Harlan Onsrud's GIS and law early essays that were on the web for quite a while. I think they still yeah. are. Yeah. But those are the, that's the part of law that actually fascinated me as well, as well as the, uh, the boundary changes. Like, is your boundary on the high water mark? Well, what is exactly the high water mark? Is it high tide? Is it mean annual tide, right? Is it low tide? All those things matter indeed. Here's another question for you. Um, what, are, what is the biggest challenge that you face in the Spatial Sciences Institute uh, right now? Uh, so, uh, so there's two, there's sort of two guiding principles from beginning to now. So one, one principle has been to lead by example. Uh, so not, uh, so I, I had an agreement with this upper administration that they weren't going to go out to a visit to another school and come back and tell me something wonderful somebody was doing and then ask me to copy it. I told them that if, mm -hmm. if they want me to stay, they, they have to have enough courage that I, I would go out and build things that perhaps nobody else had ever built before. And we'd then, then we'd see later whether they worked or not. So, you know, we have a bachelor's of science degree in geodesign. We now have a bachelor's of science degree in human security and geospatial intelligence and another one in global geodesign. Uh, we had one of the first just online degrees. Uh, Penn State and us were probably the two founders in, in that space. Uh, 
we have uh, the first, I think, MS in spatial data science. We've just launched last year an MS in uh, spatial economics and data analysis. And we have an interdisciplinary PhD in population health in place. So they, are, they all have geography and geographic information science embedded in, in them at the core, uh, but, they, but they are organized in a way that they try to recruit and, and help prepare particular audiences. So that's, that's, the, that's the first principle. And then as a consequence of that principle, all of these programs are outward looking. And in many cases, uh, at, by invitation, I've invited other uh, departments or schools on campus to contribute parts of these degrees. And so the, the challenge here is that I have to build, build and sustain a unit uh, that has depth. You know, lots of people now, 18 plus faculty, that, mm -hmm. are, that are interested and, and equipped uh, to think spatially, to work spatially, to analyze and model and visualize geographic information. And at the same time, they have to have be nimble enough and broad enough uh, that they can speak meaningfully to all these different communities that we've engaged and that we bring to our meeting spot, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe it already sounds hard, but it's easier to say than it is actually to pull off, right? Uh, and there's a lot of forces, even in a university like USC, that are, that are actually working in the opposite direction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't know why exactly, but the academy has been super comfortable for a couple of centuries <laughs> in silos, clubs. Where, the, where these little clubs have their own language, they have their own secret password to get in. Uh, they sometimes don't have a password to get out, but sometimes they do. Uh, and they're you know, quite happy talking to each other and publishing in their own little journals. And, you know, that really doesn't... Uh, I think it's important that some people do that, but I don't think everybody should do that, right? So there's some mm -hmm. delicate balance between breadth and depth. And, you know, I worry that most modern universities haven't got that right yet. Uh, but, but I'm certainly pushing at, at trying, to, trying to build and sustain breadth without perhaps compromising depth. Well, that's one of the things I've always respected about you is that um, you're not content with the status quo. You want to keep pushing the boundaries. You're an ideas person. And that's the challenge with any of us in the geographical related fields, right? Because sure, we want to specialize in soils or network analysis or whatever human health, et cetera, whatever you're, uh, you want, you're really, really passionate about a certain aspect of it, but you don't want to lose that holistic perspective, which is what, as you and I have talked about over the years, what we so critically need in our 21st century world, right? We still need people that can embrace, okay, let's look at this problem holistically and incorporate the human, the physical, the, the sociological aspects of whatever um, we need to bring to bear on this problem. And that's one of the beauties that the, the field of geography has always had on solving problems, right? It's that holistic view. So I like your, I like your depth and breadth comments and also you know good advice for you know how to be innovative in the very highly competitive academic environment uh, that we're in right now right with all the online uh, offerings out there and and if you could speak to that part you you do have a very vigorous online program 
-hmm. um, and, and how do you divide up duties of, of various faculty members uh, with you know your online versus your face-to-face -face offerings, I've visited you several times in your in your actual facility, and your facility is wonderful and the university is beautiful. But uh, I know you've got a very vibrant online community. How how's, how are things going there, and how do you sort of divide up the work? So so when we started in 2010, uh, we only had an online program. So all of the work we now do in the undergraduate space, in general education, and in the PhD space. Uh, and until recently, the master space uh, has, has has all been residential. And so uh, for the faculty that have been here the whole time, like Jennifer Swift, uh, she's evolved so that she spends some of her time working in the online space and some of her time working in the residential space. There may not be anybody now among the 18 faculty that works in one space and not the other. I'd have to look at a faculty list with classes to know that. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, before this chat with you, I came from a meeting of the executive committee for the Institute. And, you know, I think what we're planning to do is to have all of our master's programs uh, in the near future, both residential and or online. And with the idea students could, could pick and choose which classes they did residentially or online or which semesters they did residentially or online, it, it wouldn't matter to us. And so in two cases, we have online master's degrees without a residential equivalent. And in another two cases, we have residential on, uh, master's degrees without the online piece. And so we, we spent the previous hour thinking through, well, what do we have to do in terms of getting prepared if we were to say tomorrow, okay, at some point in the future, all, of our, all four master's programs will be available in both modalities. But I think that's where the... I think that's where the future lies, frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so the trick then is to be able to build the same class or course experience irrespective of the modality. And so, so far in preparation for mm -hmm. thinking about this, we've, we've done a lot of work around uh, the hands-on pieces, pieces of our classes. And, and we've been looking to upgrade or update, modernize those things in any case. And so we've tried to do it in a thoughtful way so that if we do uh, decide to do both online and residential in all our master's programs, that the, the hands-on piece would serve both modalities equally well. Uh, indeed, and certainly with the evolution of geospatial technologies to, into a largely platform driven platform-based web enabled environment that lends itself to lots of kinds of collaboration among students, between students and faculty, et cetera, even with the, the general community outside of the institute, outside of the university, uh, we've, we've got the capability, I haven't seen tons of that yet, but I'm also intrigued by, yeah, what can we be doing collaboratively um, in this environment with the online learning management systems that we have and the online platform that is GIS. It'll be a very interesting decade going ahead, for sure. Yeah, and we're, at, we're probably well positioned in that regard because for the last, uh, I don't know, five years, you know, we have, uh, we stand up in a sense, our own sort of private cloud. So all, all mm -hmm. of our students on and, and, and some distance from campus uh, have virtual desktops, virtual servers, depending on the classes they're taking. And so, uh, you, you know, we stand up a big sort of computing back end 
so that students have 24-7 access to the resources they need to, among other things, do assignments, write, write, do the analysis so they can write master's theses and things like this. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. and that's worked super well for us. And, and indeed, over time, what we've done is we've upgraded all the different components of, of our platform. Uh, we didn't get rid of the old ones. And so we actually now stand up a complete copy of our, our system so that if some critical component breaks with a flip of a switch, uh, we can get everybody up with equipment that's just a few years older. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Uh, and so this is, you know, this has been super successful for us. And, you know, uh, and so for different kinds of students, we just offer different levels of service. But, but certainly, you know, we, we would probably have, I don't know, several hundred, maybe as many as five or 600 students looking at ArcGIS Online virtually year round. And, and we, you know, we have a lesson number looking at, say, ArcGIS Pro or ArcGIS Server or some mm-hmm. other software. Well, here's a comment and, and just an idea to, to lay out there, probably something you've thought about before. First, the, the comment is one of the things that I've always been impressed by you and your colleagues there at USC is if you've, you've always been really focused on student success and also highlighting students as professionals. So for just as one example, when I'm, when I'm with your students at the Geodesign Summit, for example, at the ESRI HQ there in Redlands, yeah. you just, the students are, are treated as equals. They're, and they're so honored by being thought of highly. It's just a, a, it's a beautiful thing to see them thriving in that environment. So I just, I just salute you to, in all of your efforts of, of um, really focusing on, on the students and their success. Here's another thing that um, I wanted to just say. Eh, again, you've probably thought about this and had conversations about it, but I'm hearing more and more in my own university travels uh, from people that say, Joseph, I, I can't move. And I want an online PhD program. I'm, I'm anchored in my career, and I don't want to go, even for a summer, to a location. Uh, have you thought about that? I know it's not something to be taken lightly. It's, oh, gosh, you know, staff and funding and how are we going to support it and so on and so forth. But it seems to me that there's, there's a growing number of people that are really seeking that uh, PhD, but they just simply cannot go in residence somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't see... At USC, I don't see any appetite for taking taking undergraduate programs online or PhD programs. They seem super comfortable in the master's space, but that's a, that's about all. Yeah, I think it's you know I think it's difficult. Uh, yeah, it's something to chew on anyway. It'll be interesting to see in five years if the demand keeps increasing whether somebody will say, okay, we've just got to do it because there's there's a demand there, and we've got to meet the demand. Yeah. Uh, you know, so long as you could, uh, you think of a PhD as a path to leadership, because that's really what we're short of in this world. People with vision and leadership mm-hmm. that can get other people excited to follow them and do really creative things. Uh, you know, uh, if you set it up that way, then I think the value proposition gets a lot stronger as opposed to the traditional view is that you're going to become an expert and as a consequence of that you're going to earn a job as a as a academic or a professor or whatever 
I mean, those people are important too, and they provide a certain kind of leadership. But, you know, there are plenty of examples of people in the public and the private sector who, 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 who have much better results with leadership than perhaps people like I do. Because they are, they're, they're kind of, the latency for when they see the return is just on a much tighter cycle. So it happens a lot more quickly. Yeah, we can keep chatting about this. Uh, I like your thoughts here on these, um, on these lines. Let me ask you this. What's your advice, given your uh, geographic and academic uh, travels? Hey, can I meet with Dr. Wilson? Uh, sorry, Joseph, he's in China right now. Oh, okay. So you've seen a lot of people. You've met a lot of people. You've worked on a lot of different projects. And kind of looking forward into the 2020s when this, when this actually will be, will be published, and available for people, what do you think we really need to be working on as a education, STEM, geospatial science community? Uh, you know, I think last year, Mark uh, Gagan from the University of Auckland published a paper in the Canadian Geographer about why, G why our GIS is too small. Mm. And, you mm. know, I, I can't remember exactly what he wrote about, but uh, the title is certainly catchy, and, and I think the, the big problem is that the people that so far, at least in the academy, the people that have been engaged by GI science and, and have been successful to the extent they've finished a PhD and then got an academic job of one kind or another, for whatever reason, they just don't think, uh, they don't think big enough. And so the, the rate-limiting step here is, is not the, the theory that we have already, nor the technology, nor the practice, but rather, you know, taking what we have and imagining a big, bold future and then organizing sort of a, a vision around that and then systematically getting people together to try and execute that, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, perhaps what the, what the community lacks is, is I think what Mark Gagan would call call builders, you know, people that build things, not for themselves, but for the community, right? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I think, you know, personally, you know, sometimes when I introduce myself at a meeting, I probably describe myself as something of a builder, right? Certainly, you know, I'm the founding director of spatial sciences. I'm also the founding director of transactions in GIS. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm suddenly the editor in chief for the geographic information science and technology body of knowledge. Yes. And so these are these are in large measure all uh, community driven initiatives, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. so you know, among other things, they keep me busy, I guess. But uh, I'm I'm interested in that broader impact. So in the context of a remark you made earlier. Uh, it's not just about vision. I think it's, it's also about culture. And so when you talked about, you know, for example, our students at the Geodesign Summit in February in Redlands, you know, the, the culture that Susan Kamei and I have tried to build and, and, and to encourage others to help us build here at USC is that, you know, the students are the future. And so if you, one way to have an impact is to motivate and empower them to go out and do great things in the world. Uh, and, you know, I'm super mm -hmm. proud of our accomplishments. You know, I think uh, in the last nine years, we've now graduated perhaps a, a, a few more than 300 
online master's degrees in geographic information science and technology. And to the best of my knowledge, all who want to be gainfully employed in the geospatial sector are employed. And, you know, since many of them are connected to me through my LinkedIn account, I don't think there's a, a week gone by this year where I didn't get a note saying one of them had taken a new job or had been promoted, right? And so mm -hmm. many of these young men and women are upwardly mobile in terms of their professional career and their impact. And, uh, and it's in part a, a reflection of, of them, they themselves, of course, but, but also the time they spent with us and the kind of curriculum and particularly the kind of culture we tried to build. So, you know, I think vision and culture and motivation, all these things are a part of a bundle. And, and doing one won't get you the desired results. You've got to, you know, you've got to try and build the whole package. And, and you know, I think here we try to work on that every day, frankly. Well, the results are definitely speaking for themselves. The other department that I can think of that does something of what you do is Texas State with Dr. Giordano and others. They, they bring their students to lots of different events. Yep. And it's that whole culture of uh, respecting the students and valuing their contributions. Uh, okay, we're running a little bit short on time here. So let me just wrap up by a, a couple of things and just ask you uh, one more thing. But do you have a favorite map Dr. Wilson, do you have a favorite map or data set that you just kind of go to in your, in your, in your mind sometimes? Uh, well, I have a favorite idea. Okay. Uh, you know, when I, when I switched from, well, when I decided simultaneously to take a whole year of a science honors degree as I was doing a law honors degree in geography at the University of Canterbury, New Zealand, you had to do this kind of methods kind of course or supplement to a course or some damn thing. And I don't know, after about three or four weeks, uh, I'd, I'd got 100% on four assignments in a row. And, and that was causing disruption because everybody else found it super hard. <laughs> and they all wanted to sit by me so they could figure out how to do it by looking at how I was doing it. Uh, you know, this is in the day when, you know, a calculator was almost as big as your laptop. Yes. <laughs> you were lucky you might do square root and squares as well as addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And so they, the department chair invited me to coffee and said, seems like this, uh, this class is too easy for you. So uh, do you want to take the final exam now? And if you pass that, what I'd like to do is to, is to uh, set you up as a paid research assistant for one of my new faculty. And his name was uh, Pip Fora. Uh, he was at Canterbury for a long time. And so <clears throat> I passed the exam after four weeks. It's, the class runs for about 25 weeks. And uh, so then I was assist his assistant. And, and what he wanted to do was he wanted to, there was no GIS in those days. He wanted me to build a, a model of water draining across a landscape. And, mm. you know, mm -hmm. I, hardly knew anything about computers and so I don't know how long I spent doing this. Eventually I figured out how to do something as I remember. Uh, but I've often reflected on the fact that from that one seed, uh, my PhD dissertation was really launched. It was again, I chose to do it in a way that as far as I know, nobody else had ever tried. It was moderately successful. 
but since then, of course, I've written many, many articles and a couple of books on digital train analysis. Mm-hmm. And it all had a start for me uh, from a little kind of computer assignment I got uh, as a ah, worker, mm-hmm. you know, many, many years before I actually did anything serious with the ideas that I was exposed to then. And, uh, you know, so there's this cute sort of balance between patience and, 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 and trying to change the world. And so uh, these kinds of experiences often taught me that, you know, there are times that you want to be both. There are times you want to just store ideas and see when they percolate up again. And there are other times when you get a new idea, you just want to run with it straight away. Uh, and uh, so that's, I often go back to think about what I have done, would I have written the two books I've written if I hadn't had that experience when I was, you know, in a mm-hmm. freshman geography class 40 plus years ago? Well, just to uh, uh, relate to the technical evolution that you were hinting at, the first GPS I ever used at the U.S. Geological Survey actually fit into the back of a utility van, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Wilson. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could hold one of these in our hands someday? Oh, that'll be years from now. And it was about mm, four years later when I actually got my first you know, Garmin held, handheld uh, XL12, I think it was. Anyway, so yeah, it's, I can relate to what you're saying. By the way, we did have uh, Professor Ge- Gehegan yeah. Uh, from the University of uh, Auckland at uh, the S3 Education Summit this summer. He was, he was yeah, it, it, what you were saying, he was uh, innovative, challenging, uh, putting forth a lot of different uh, sorts of ideas, make us think uh, differently about uh, a field that we all love, GIS and education. So, yeah, good connection. And he's a builder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Big time. Indeed. Well, thank you for your comments um, and, and, and nudges forward also keeping us on our toes in uh, lots of different ways. And I wish you all success in the future with the program. And uh, I know I'll be working with you in various ways and look forward to that. And again, thanks for, for being a part of Geo Inspirations, sir. Pleasure. Thank you. All right. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Wilson. Much appreciated.